Hi, Perry Robinson, uh, retired um, vice president and dean of admissions and college counselor. And, um, oh, God. President of WACAC. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. Start over. All right. Hello, and welcome to episode number 37 of the Admissions Directors Launchcast. I'm your host, Nathan Ament, Vice President of Enrollment Management at Loyola University, New Orleans. And I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Tej Matil, Director of Enrollment Success and EnrollML. Tej, how are you today? I am good, Nathan. And this week in particular, I think one of our shared friends and mentors, Steve Syverson, would be super proud of us. I believe you are correct, and I'm pretty sure that's because today we're discussing the future of test scores, and mm -hmm. Steve, who was our boss at Lawrence University long ago, 15 years, my friend. That was not, not necessary, counting. Nathan. That was not necessary. A couple years ago. <laughs> anyway, Steve was on the leading edge of the test optional movement, and I believe he gets a name drop in one of these interviews. Mm-hmm. So we've set the bar very high, Teej, in making me think that Steve is actually listening to this right now. Um, I know we've had him on in a previous season, but maybe he's listening. I think you should text this episode to him. Anyway, with that in mind, do you think we need to remind the folks about how the lunch came? Yes, it, it can't hurt, right? Here's what happens. Each week, Nathan and I, along with our guests, one influencer and one practitioner, we'll discuss a topic that is directly related to recruitment and admission. Our hope is that by the end of the lunch hour, you, the listener, will have a good enough handle on the topic that you can implement tactics quickly, maybe even this afternoon. So that's what we're going to do today. Specifically, we're going to focus on the future of test scores. And as always, we have two great guests to provide insights on this topic. This week, as our influencer guest, we have my good friend, Perry Robinson, the president of Wisconsin ACAC, as I needed to remind him, and a happily retired admissions professional. <laughs> you did have to remind him, that's right. <laughs> and as our practitioner guest, we have Christopher Toribo, president of International ACAC and manager of international admissions at Orange Coast College in Costa Mesa, California. Iggy, I am really excited to tackle this topic, so let's get started. It's Tiggy. Teach. <laughs> that was glorious. Well, Teach, as we said in the opening, this is a hot topic. Maybe not as hot as college fairs, but oh, oh no! Listen, I you follow the NACAC listserv. Nobody gets so worked up about college fairs that they start saying the things. In a, a public professional forum that people right. do when test, test scores come up. I know, I know. And I just think this is such an interesting um, topic to be having now. And um, I think when we interviewed and we set these questions to Perry, his perspective 
mm-hmm. um, what you're hoping for as a retired admissions professional, both on, on really on both sides of the desk, right? Mm-hmm. As a former mm-hmm. vice president and dean of admissions um, at a school in Ohio, and then, you know, working on the school counselor side of the desk. Um, and one of the, you know, I think he was one of the first folks in Ohio to move a school, move a school test optional, um, you know, just to have his perspective from back in the day when the movement started to then seeing and counseling um, students now mm-hmm. as they went through um, this watershed moment that was COVID. And now, honestly, post COVID with air quotes, um, what's happening and what, you know, what, what are the students expecting and how are the students perceiving test optional? You know, test optional and not just test optional test blind too, Nathan. I don't, I don't want to gloss over the fact that you are on the leading edge of the test blind movement. Um, which you make a big deal about that. You make a big deal about it in the interview. And I do, um, Nathan, it's a big deal. And I, I think that as our profession continues to evolve and kind of reconsider our positioning with the standardized test scores, and to be frank, our relationship with those companies, um, and how, at what point we push those companies on students and what we use that information for, I think test blind is going to continue to, um, catch more and more momentum. And I think it'll come faster than test optional came at us. Yeah. 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 I, I hope so. And, and listen, we have people like you to thank for it. So I hope you didn't ever intend to retire to a nice cushy job at one of the testing companies because <laughs> yeah, I don't see it. I don't see it. Definitely not. I was jealous. <laughs> I remember when we interviewed Perry, I think I even commented on it. He was, it was a beautiful winter day in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. He was sitting in his family room um, with the wood paneling behind him. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that's where I want to be in however many you get through some tuition exchange first um but yeah i would it seemed like it, it was such a you know i want our listeners to really hear that conversation but i don't want to cut christopher short as well Mm-mm. um the questions we asked him because he's in his role as president of international acac mm-hmm. and then also as a manager of international admissions on the west coast added to your institution um we we pushed him a little bit on how these testing changes have impacted international um, admissions and specifically international applicants. Yeah. Christopher's, you know, when Christopher signed up for this particular topic, um, I was really excited to get the, the international perspective brought into the conversation. Cause I think it's often overlooked, right? When we talk about test blind, test optional, very often we, we say, except for international students, right? Um, right. So hearing his thoughts and perspectives was, I, I think, particularly illuminating, and I think our listeners are going to really benefit from it. All right. Well, I think it's time we heard from our guests. So here's our conversation with, with our influencer guest, Perry Robinson, followed by our conversation with our practitioner guest, Christopher Toribo. As always, we hope you enjoy these discussions, and we'll see you on the other side. Well, Nathan, it is a Wisconsin reunion this week. We are so lucky to be joined by Perry Robinson, the president of Wisconsin ACAC and a very happily retired admissions and counseling professional. 
Perry, welcome to the LunchCast. Thanks, Tej. It's great to be here, and it's great to be with uh, fellow Badgers. Yeah, yes, we're glad to have you. Perry, I, I, of course, am very familiar with your career route and, and path to retirement, but for folks that don't know you, can you just kind of fill everybody in on, on how you got your start to, all the way to how you got here? Sure, be happy to. Um, graduated from Ripon College in 1979, and uh, then I went to work immediately for Xerox Corporation in Milwaukee, where I was a miserable failure, schlubbing <laughs> office equipment around the streets of Milwaukee, and, um, and I was fired. Uh, after about three years, and I was out looking for a job, and I'd been a tour guide at Ripon, and fortunately, I knew the dean of admissions at that point, and he invited me to come up and apply for a, a job there, which I did, and that uh, launched me on my admissions career. Uh, uh, about seven years later, eight years later, I left Ripon, because if I wanted to move up, I had to move out, and um, mm -hmm. found this school down in Ohio that I'd never heard of before, and I had never even been to Ohio, called Denison University, and I went there as an associate. Uh, and, in, and that was in 1988. And in 1994-95, after a series of deans had been um, invited to select other careers, um, I was the last one standing, so to speak, of the associate. And so um, the president um, asked me if I wanted to be um, the dean of admissions, interim dean or acting dean. And I said, well, maybe. Um, and so uh, off I went on that part of my career and um, ultimately became a vice president and uh, was vice president and dean of admissions until uh, 2015. And I had just about had my fill of uh, college admissions work. And I felt if I were just to move to another office of admissions, I'd probably be facing some of the same, same problems I didn't like um, that I was starting to experience at Denison. And so I decided to move to the other part of the desk other side of the desk. And um, I was fortunate enough to be um, selected by Susan Sarwell, Zarwell at University School of Milwaukee to join their team as a uh, college counselor. And I stayed at USM uh, until uh, about 2021. And I've been retired. This is my second full year of retirement. And, and how is it going? Are you successful in retirement? I think so. You know, I, I had two good mentors and my parents about how to retire and uh, they uh, they taught me to, you know, have a purpose every morning. And so I've tried to surround my uh, my days with uh, little jobs and I still mm -hmm. stay in touch with the school by helping out over there on occasion with um, proctoring exams and working at athletic events and um, also learning to play guitar. Um, okay, but, good. The jobs I'm doing and volunteering that I'm doing are probably of no interest to anyone except me, uh, but it, it's, it, it kept my mind uh, crisp and, uh, you know, keep me active. So, well, I would, president of WACAC is a, is a good side hobby for yeah. retirement. So yeah. we're interested in that. That was a, a moment of weakness, Teach. <laughs> well, we, we, we're lucky. We're fortunate. Thank you. Well, Perry, we're talking about the future of test scores this week, which uh, you know, I would say just five years ago, I, I didn't think it could get more confusing or tricky, but indeed it has. So we're in this moment where it feels to me like we're kind of past the, the watershed incident of, of COVID impacting test, the <laughs> test optional movie, movement. So my question, Perry, is do you think where we are today, are we better off as it pertains to student needs or is everything just more convoluted and perplexing to them? I think Tej, it's a it's, it's a little of both, um, and and I say that because 
Um, I do think that, you know, and I'm a, an advocate of the upfront and, you know, in the interest of truth, uh, um, I'm an uh, a advocate for test optional. Um, I, I initiated that at Denison um, and had spent a lot of time with Steve Syverson um, at Lawrence University. Uh, we had come to know each other over the years and they had already gone test optional. And so we patterned a lot of our, our work ultimately off of some of the work Steve had done. And, and as such, I'm a, an advocate for it. I didn't think that it would balloon like it did. And I think the reason that it did balloon uh, as a policy had nothing to do really with deans or um, the faculty at colleges or universities or administrators or boards or alumni bodies really interested in moving to test optional. Mm -hmm. um, the, it, it happened because of a you know a worldwide pandemic, and um, and suddenly folks got on the the bandwagon as a result of some of the challenges that the testing services had faced uh, in administering the exams. And I think in many respects, um, it ended up moving test optional into the public domain in a larger way and in a much faster way. Then it then they were perhaps um, ready to absorb or fully understand. Uh, we'd kind of been plopping along before that, as you'll recall, with a few colleges and universities um, moving into test optional uh, every year, and then suddenly just boom, it exploded. And so I think that has led to some confusion um, for families and for students. Um, I think some colleges and universities um, got into test optional for really many of the wrong reasons. Um, and um, and yet I think, you know, the windfalls or the benefits um, uh, of test optional have been, uh, you know, also very good for many students and greater access to underrepresented populations, um, forcing, um, you know, kind of the, the um, college and university admission officers to spend more time in assessing candidates uh, based on their their day-to-day -day performances and the rigor of their their record uh, and other attributes that they bring and um, and I think that's that's been good uh, for uh, for the the whole process I think also another side benefit if you will has been that um, it's it has led to greater subjectivity um, in the assessment process. And by that, I mean um, that um, the non-cognitive uh, areas of candidates' uh, records mm -hmm. and the whole, um, you know, system or the whole um, notion of test or non-cognitive uh, assessment is starting to grow. Um, and many colleges, particularly the large public universities are starting to spend more time studying how can they implement non-cognitive factors uh, into their ad admission assessment process. I think that's a great thing because as we all know, um, the non-cognitive areas of a candidate's life uh, and their intellect can often, and their character uh, can oftentimes um, be a, a very strong determinant in their ability to navigate and to be successful and to sustain and thrive um, in, a, in a collegiate environment. So I think that may be one of the benefits um, coming out of, uh, of the test optional thing. So I, I think it's a little of both um, mm -hmm. that, that I've observed at least. 
Well, I can't, I, Perry, I can't help but ask a follow-up. You said tucked in there, a lot of colleges did it not for the right reasons. Yep. What, what, what are the right reasons? What are the wrong reasons? Well, I think because of the timing uh, that, that existed, many schools, and I'm talking those that had, you know, have, have incredible IR um, operations uh, and the resources to spend studying the whole notion of test optional. Um, it was just not studied. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, these were not necessarily data-driven decisions, I don't believe. You know, some of this is going to be my editorializing. <laughs> That's I, okay. I don't believe they had the time uh, to mm-hmm. do it well. And for us, when we implemented it, we spent a year um, just studying, um, speaking to indiv- individual institutions that had implemented before we did, vetting it within the community. Um, and all this, in the end, became very important, I think, to to our success. You know, there's no way, I, I just can't believe that, as be, again, because of the timing factor, there couldn't be the kind of community investment that I think is required for successful test optional, uh, you know, um, implementation. Um, it went against bottom-up governments uh, because mm-hmm. they didn't have the time to vet it with faculty. And I suspect that ruffled some feathers. Um, they were not set up to successfully implement uh, test optional. You know, their staffs just weren't prepared for it. Um, I can't imagine how some major and large comprehensive universities are able to assess holistically. And I, I, you know, I used to be on a a college council board with Penn, for example, and they took us down in the bowels of the Penn admission office building and, um, they're, uh, you know, they're practicing um, community-based reading there. And um, still uh, with the large, and this was a number of years ago, with the large um, applicant pools they had, they were averaging eight minutes an application. Um, They had to in order to get through other applications. So I never thought that test optional would be good practice for large universities because I didn't think that they could get into, had the, the luxury of time to get into the guts of a candidate's application. Mm. But obviously that's happening. Um, and, you know, I, I think also that schools did it for a marketing publicity bump in some cases, and um, some did it to enhance their, you know, common admission metrics. Um, those are the things that I think were um some of the wrong reasons that test optional you know, blew up. Perry, I can tell you as somebody sitting in the chair when we needed to make that decision, you know, yeah. um, at the right during lockdown for the following year, because you have to make all those decisions a year in advance to be ready mm-hmm. and whatever else. Um, it was, it, it was made very quickly um, mm-hmm. and it wasn't with that bottom up governance, but I, we'd been kind of tossing it around even before, the pandemic and somebody um, that I had been leaning on that had just done it um, said, there's really the, you know, there's a 12 month path. There's the three month path (laughs) (laughs) and they both kind of end up with the same results, but you do have more buy-in from the community, um, from Mm -hmm. the university community. If you do the 12 month path and they just have more awareness about it um then if you have to you know just if you just do it quickly because you just you just have to get it done and you know you're going to go that direction either way and so this kind of go ahead go ahead no i i was just going to say that i actually had to be talked into to getting community buy-in i didn't i wanted to just keep it at the administrative level just push Mm -hmm. it through and um so i was talked into it and i uh, after the fact i was really pleased that i was talked into it because 
you know, we knew the scientists would be, uh, you know, against test optional. They generally are. Um, mm -hmm. And um, yet when it came to the faculty floor for a vote, it was, uh, you know, almost unanimous. So that was good. And we also had to get some student buy-in because interestingly, some of our greatest opponents were our students. Mm -hmm, they thought, right. oh, God, I had to sit for that SAT or ACT and I want every <laughs> right. one of those seniors in high school to have to do it, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And then alumni too, they felt that the reputation of the yep. school was maybe harmed. So um, mm -hmm. that time spent with that buy-in uh, was really important for us. Yeah, and we're experiencing that at Loyola because we went, um, we skipped over test optional and went right to test blind and um, there's wow. just a lot of misinformation about what test blind meant versus test optional. And I'll do another name drop. You dropped Cyrus's name already. I'll name drop it again. <laughs> Having worked with him <laughs> at the end of his career up at Lawrence, I saw firsthand how onerous it was on the staff to review applicants to, for test optional, to your point. You know, how do you mm -hmm. do it at Penn? We had a hard time even at Lawrence back in the day accomplishing that. I was working with conservatory admissions, so we had an, you know we had the audition score even to contend yeah. with whatever else. I knew when I was looking around, and again making the decision, having to make the decision quickly because my back was up against the wall mm -hmm. with the pandemic. But looking around, going, I don't, I have like the same number of admissions counselors as we had at Lawrence. I have three times as many applications because we have a bigger applicant pool down here, and we're rolling admissions. Um, I, I don't see a way that we don't get to the same outcome by why would I drag the counselors through and the students to that perspective, you know, mm -hmm. like, should we submit an essay if we're not doing the test score? Should we not, you know, all of that. Um, and given the, the different populations that we serve down here in new Orleans and we're a national school, but serve a local population, test blind was going to serve the student better, both from the outcome, you know, of where they were at as far as, you know, what would they get in or not, but then also just that they would be less confusing. But I knew that was unique to us. So I'm, I'm really, there's a question wrapped up in here. Don't worry. <laughs> but, um, but I would, I'm, I'm curious. I thought so, Nathan. Yeah, yeah, I'm getting there. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm curious as you've kind of looked at it from your perspective, um, sitting in that counseling chair mm -hmm. up there, um, you know, are you seeing are you seeing that test blind is better for the student and the families, or are they gravitating towards test optional? Or I'm just I'm really interested on in the difference that you're seeing between test blind and test optional. Yeah, I think that um, in the case of uh, test blind, it is a cleaner and easier to understand policy. Um, and also one where um, in many respects for the families and the students, it removes the question mark or the skepticism as to whether the test scores are important for them or not. And when a, a test blind school, um, you know, we, we would often get students come in and, and they, would, they would ask us, you know, do you think I should submit? Well, we never directed them on whether they should submit. We would try to you know, provide them information to make that judgment call on their own and with their parents. Uh, some data from the institutions, for example, or anything we might be able to provide that would inform them better. Um, but that was always a question mark in, with the test optional schools. You know, should I submit? Mm -hmm. And I think with um, test blind, they know uh, they're going to be assessed the same way as everyone else. The playing field is leveled once again. And I think I know in my my uh, uh, work with our families at USM, 
um, for many of them, they were very skeptical about uh, test optional in terms of its, you know, in practice. Were schools really, you know, doing what they advertised? Uh, and and for others, um, having been, you know, inculcated with the importance in our culture of sitting for an SAT or ACT, that's just part of the journey one takes through college or through high school. Um, they had a hard time just grasping the notion that um, institutions and admission officers could make a decision about their child without a test score present. Mm -hmm. They had a hard time, you know, even if you would show data, you know, you guys may have heard of a, a gentleman by the name of Bill Bowen. Um, he was longtime president at Mellon Foundation and also a uh, longtime president at Princeton. He happened to be a dentist and alumnus and a board member. And huh. uh, he did a lot of work in his, you know, one of his final last books that he wrote, um, I think it's called Crossing the Finish Line or something like that. Um where they just studied a vast number of admission data from around the country. And in the end, I remember him telling me this, uh, what they found uh, is that the best predictor of how a student is going to do in his or her first year of college, and you know, admission officers, pretty much that's what we're all about, is trying to predict how a student is going to do in his or her first year of college. Um, the best predictor uh, was the cumulative GPA. That's what they found. And interestingly, at least for me, interestingly, um, it didn't matter the high school. When they changed up the high school, the student's cumulative GPA still was the best predictor. Because oftentimes you'll hear, well, you need that test score in order to you know, level the playing field to account for differences that exist in, in teaching. And apparently not so much. At least that was what their data uh, was able to, to demonstrate. So I think that... Um, it will be interesting to observe the next few years, how many schools make this next step and move to test, you know, uh, blind. And, um, and it may be those that are already test optional have developed a comfort, a community comfort with that uh, whole notion. And in order to um, make the discussion easier and easier to understand and also uh, provide greater confidence uh, in their students and families, uh, decided to pull the trigger and move to test blind. But I think right now, of the two policies, test blind is easier uh, to understand than the test optional. Well, listen, th this whole this whole movement and philosophy is just wrought with individual situations and challenges. So Perry, we, we're way over on time. Uh, okay. I think we're going to have to cut a bunch of this out for the the spring spring drop, but we appreciate all of your thoughts and perspective. Thank you so much for joining us. No worries. Thank you, man. Yeah. Sorry, I tend to blabber a lot. So I need Perry, somebody with a hook. <laughs> Perry, I was fully aware of that when we invited you in. So that's good. Um, Perry, we always just like to to ask our guests two final questions. Uh, yep. What are you working on next? And how can folks get in touch with you if they want to? Yeah, uh, the next thing I'll be working on is... Um, Going over and watching the boys' hockey game tonight at USM and being a bouncer <laughs> at the arena. Other than that, uh, Teach, um, you know, professionally, still going to be, um, you know, ending my my term as president for WACAC, and then next year I'll be um, past president. That'll keep me busy, at least in in some respects, uh, with with the profession. And then I'm just trying to improve on my guitar playing. But other than that, <laughs> there's not a lot of big steps for me. And how can people get in touch? Welcome to, to have them, um, you know, email me 
and it's Robinson Perry uh, at me, M-E, M as a man, E.com. Thank you so much, Perry. You bet. Thanks, guys. Appreciated it. Nathan, do you remember how excited you were to land on the NACAC Podcast Network? I was, and it was the second most exciting day of my life. If you actually throw my wedding day under the bus one more time, I'm going <laughs> to drive up there to Greendale, Waukesha, Wisconsin, wherever you live. Listen. And I'm going to be very mad at you. I get it. The order of days in your life, your wedding day, first. NACAC Podcast Network, second. Your children being born, third and fourth. No, still No. Still no, not that they actually listen to this podcast, but still no. Nathan, so why I, are we excited about it today? I'm talking over you like I usually do, but why are we excited about today, T? Because in the middle of these episodes, we just want to shine a little bit of light on our podcasting friends. So we've recorded just a little bit of teaser, just a little bit of information about each of the 16 other podcasts on the podcast network. If any of them sound interesting to you, you can find them wherever podcasts are sold. I think available or stream. On the College Essay Guy podcast, A Practical Guide to College, Ethan Sawyer, aka the College Essay Guy, aims to bring more ease, joy, purpose, and access to the college admissions process by interviewing college admissions experts and distilling their advice into practical steps for college-bound students and their counselors. The Crush Davin Sweeney is a college counselor who thinks the crush sums up the way most people feel about college and college admissions. Experiences with higher education are fundamentally human ones, and this interview series explores this world with experts in a diverse range of fields. Well, Tej, I'm really excited to uh, welcome our next guest here, Christopher Terribio, President of International ACAC and Manager of International Admissions at Orange Coast College. Christopher, welcome to the LunchCast. Hello, thank you so much for having me. It's such a great honor and a privilege to be here. Thank you so much. Well, Christopher, we really appreciate you joining us. We're really glad you decided to join the LunchCast. Before we get into the questions here today, why don't you give the folks just a little bit of your background and how you got to your current position at Orange Coast College? Yeah, wonderful. So as you mentioned, um, I work for Orange Coast College, which is a two-year community college in Costa Mesa, California. Um, but I've been in international admission and education and international education for about 15 years since 2008. Can't believe that time has passed that quickly. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> But I started working for my alma mater, the University of Hawaii at Manoa. So aloha to everybody. I'm originally from Hawaii. Very proud of that, actually. Um, and I started out as an admission counselor. Um, and I was given the opportunity to do international recruitment for the admission office there. And from then on, it just really sparked my interest and my passion for international education. And I was there for five years before moving to the mainland. Um, took a chance and started working for the University of California, Riverside as an international admission specialist. Um, at that time, UC Riverside was looking to build their international student enrollment. Um, but it was really great training, really understanding the UC application, selective admission. Um, and it really prepared me for this role at OCC. And I'm incredibly proud to work for community college, honestly. Um, it's the most fun job I've ever had. It really changed my perspective on higher education access. And I really wanted to provide 
a space for our international students to choose to come to two-year colleges um, because they're often, you know, not considered or overlooked or they just don't have a lot of resources. So I, throughout my entire career, I've been very involved with um, international ACAC. Um, and, you know, we specialize in the counseling of students looking to cross borders for their undergraduate degree. It was the only way that I really knew how to engage prospective students was through college counseling. Um, and it's been, it's been wonderful. I mean, Orange Coast College has really provided me a lot of opportunities to really speak about different ways of students to obtain higher education, the access of um, the access available and really starting that conversation of access and opportunity for our students. And we have a huge international student population here. In fact, we're the third largest host community college in Southern California for international students. And I, what I love most about working for an access institution like this is that we capture such a wide net of students from you know, different curriculums, different stages of their adult life. And we have a lot of programs. So um, my trajectory moving forward after my role at International ACAC is to continue to serve um, with the purpose of promoting to your college options to students um, because it can be universal. But yeah, I've traveled to what, 60 countries at this point for my role. Wow. Um, yeah. So um, I'm about to leave for Asia this week, actually, a, a three week trip to seven countries. So, yeah, it's it's been an interesting ride. Oh, good for you. It definitely sounds like an interesting ride and I'm um, coming all you know from Hawaii and, and everything else. So I'm glad you're serving international ACAC and it sounds like you've been successful so far and in many years to come. We're talking a little bit about test scores, and um, I'm I'm really glad how this episode is came together because our guest earlier talked a lot about how test scores affect domestic students. That was Perry Robinson from Wisconsin ACAC, but I'm really interested to hear your thoughts around um, international. So we, you know, we've thought about the testing changes that have impacted the domestic students taking the ACT or the SAT, but. What do we need to be sure to remember when it comes to international students and these tests? You know, really good question. And I think the conversation when it came to test optional really amplified, especially for just getting access to the test during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I know a lot of institutions have changed their policies regarding test optional. But one thing that most people don't know is that for a lot of admissions offices and a lot of universities, they were practicing test optional for the SAT or ACT for international students well before the pandemic, actually. Um, so for a lot of institutions in this field, in this area of admissions, it's really not a brand new concept. Now, um, it definitely ramped up. I think a lot of institutions that traditionally had tests required policies, it's a very brand new endeavor for them. Um, but yeah, international admissions has been doing it for a really, really long time. So it's not anything new. I think when it comes to standardized testing, the one thing that we think about on the international admission side is um, the English proficiency test, which is not required, of course, for you know U.S. domestic students. But you know, testing services such as the TOEFL, IELTS, Duolingo. Duolingo has provided a lot of access for students actually to obtain you know an English proficiency test, and also just looking at like a student's transcript and language curriculum or language of instruction in the curriculum to determine proof of English proficiency. But on the international side, that's where it kind of landed. Um, but there's just been understanding for a lot of institutions that the SAT or ACT for a lot of students, it's not really accessible. It's not part of their secondary school life per se, um, but standardized testing in general for international students is also not uncommon. 
you know, a lot of these students come from curriculums um, where testing is the only thing that matters when it comes to their high school graduation or the secondary school graduation and ultimately entry to a university and their major in their home country. Um, so again, this issue of testing really, I know it has been amplified from COVID-19, but on the international side, it's been in practice for a really long time. That's great. And you talked yeah. about kind of the um, shift in testing policies related to international admissions over time, but a few a few institutions have been revoking their testing policies, specifically kind of going back to tests post-pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think this trend will continue? And then I'll just ask you to weigh in a little further. Um, do you think it should continue or, or where do you think we should go as an industry with tests? Yeah, good question. I guess it just really depends on the institution. I, you know, just remember, like one thing that we do preach in international admission is that there are 4,000 universities and colleges in the United States. Um, mm -hmm. There are many universities around the world that students are choosing, international students are choosing as an option to, so for to say that international of universities in general are going to move towards this policy, going revoking this policy, I think it's definitely going to be institution by institution. And I think it's really important to remember that admissions typically does not make this call, you know, in terms of whether or not an institution will be test optional or they decide to keep it or revoke it. It usually comes from faculty senate or in many cases for public institution, it comes from directives from the state or state mandates. So it's going to be really interesting to know. I I think what test optional did, um, because one thing that I, that I feel that's more amplified in the international space is this ideal of institutional ranking that is of important value for a lot of students in different countries, that what test optional did, in my opinion, was that a lot of highly selective institutions or rejective universities, depending how you look at it, saw an increase of applications because of the test optional policies. So it's going to be really interested to see how their year went without this test optional policy and while balancing just the increased number of applications that these institutions have seen. But again, there's 4,000 universities and colleges, so it'd be really difficult for me to provide like one statement to say that all institutions are going to revoke these policies that they have. And again, a lot of international admissions offices at universities have been practicing test optional way before COVID. Yeah, and that's a really good point because there's um, plenty of institutions that have had different policies sure. for international students, um, and so I think it. I think you're right. It's going to be a case by case basis. I think it's interesting to hear your perspective, especially coming from a two year institution in the state of California. Um, I, I view it as that is actually a decision that comes from enrollment management because I had to spearhead it in my own institution. But I think you're dead on about that. It actually is probably a decision that isn't necessarily sitting with admissions anyway, right? Right. I mean, at least in my professional experience, I mean, like when it comes to admission policies, it was a directive coming from those who don't work in admissions. So typically from the faculty. Now, how we facilitate that, I mean, that's based on institutional, I mean, admission practices, but I work primarily at public institutions where that's really driven, not by the admissions itself, but yeah, maybe enrollment management in some extent, but typically it comes from the faculty. So at sure. least that was my experience working in public institutions here. So let's go a little bit further out onto the ledge, especially if you have experience working with faculty and how nervous mm -hmm. um, my, I, I think I've, I, I've experienced some faculty are nervous about this next topic, which is direct admissions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, 
that's that's the front line and the and the leading edge of um the new innovation i believe that's coming into our profession it's starting to gain popularity there's at least a couple companies and organizations out there that are working hard on this um big and small so you know as it starts to gain popularity um christopher do you think test scores will become more important again as a factor um in in direct admissions good good question um you know, to be perfectly honest, I'm not super privy to direct admission. So you kind of have to give me a little bit of education on that. Oh, um, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and we may end up cutting this. Um, that's a different you, language but, that I'm not really, I'm not really. And that's totally okay. And and I'm not yeah. surprised coming from a two-year institution that you don't know much about it. So direct admissions is um, a situation where that actually puts the decision in the hands of the student in that a school is going out to them and for lack of a better term, providing them with an offer oh. and the student can either, um, and it's not a concrete offer. It's more a general, Hey, we think you would be great. Here's an admissions offer. You will be admitted. Um, should you choose to put in an application and then the student, depending on the technology, um, if they're using an app, um, which it seems to be where the, it's kind of going right now is that they can, uh, it sounds trite, but that they can swipe left or swipe right, <laughs> um, and choose to then submit an official application. But the institution is getting at least a GPA, possibly a copy of the transcript. And they're going out to these students and saying, if you choose to do so, um, we'd love for you to put in an application and then you'll be admitted immediately. Yeah. Okay. Got it. I feel like we invented that at the community colleges, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong, probably, Christopher. <laughs> so I don't know if I want universities to claim that idea because, yes, I mean, we can just go out to students and say, hey, come to us. We'll admit you. We have a seat for you automatically. That's a really good, that's a really interesting approach. I know there's been several you know technologies out there that i can think of that basically the institution is applying to the student and not the opposite i mean not the traditional way of the other way around um yeah no that's a really good question i can foresee how testing i think that communication piece will be really important for that student though um if they're going to move forward in this direction especially with testing required policies um, but yeah, I'd be really interested to know how four-year institutions are going to be facilitating that um, with really robust, you know, requirements that they would have to submit. Um, this, kind, this kind of sounds to me like in the international admission world called conditional admission, mm -hmm. which you would typically offer for students that, you know, you met everything except for the English requirements. So I'd be really interested to know. I'd be really interesting to know that trend. But yeah. It's fascinating to see the direct admissions coming because it really uh, seems challenging to do holistic review at the same time hmm. right. and and to be focused on match from the college's perspective. And maybe we shouldn't have been, maybe we should trust the students on match, right? More than, than we have historically, but the move towards test optional or even test blind and, and Nathan, not to sing your praises too much, but you took an institution, not just to test optional straight to test blind, right? right Which is right. where I think we need to go, but the move away from tests at the same time, this direct admissions uh, approach is coming. Um, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see those two interlock. Mm. Well, and I, 
I've made this argument, even though we're violating direct admissions right now, I've made the argument that it feels a little bit like the fast apps from 10, 15 years ago. Mm. Um, you know, that this is kind of just a repackaged version of some of that. Um, but I think the way that the technology is being um, presented to the students, the way that they're viewing the schools, um, they're seeing it as they don't have to go through an onerous process. At the end of the day, that's really what it's about, that they're able to create a profile within these technology platforms and that the student, excuse me, that the school is looking at them and the school is reaching out saying, we really want you to apply. I think it um, leans in heavily to a lot of the characteristics of Gen Z that they um, want to be wanted, if you will. Um, and then also that they just, you know, they, they live in their phones. <laughs> and so if they can easily utilize that technology to say, nope, um, put me into the running and I have all the information without having to complete a ridiculously lengthy application, um, that's where they're at. But I agree with you, Teach. Like it's it's going to be tough for these institutions um, mm -hmm. to actually do a, a holistic review of these applications I think that begs the question, though, that by the time we creep up here on 2026 and once we're in the real heart of the cliff between 26 mm -hmm. and 30, I don't think it's going to matter. I'll be perfectly honest. <laughs> <laughs> for most of us, I think it's going to be really important for the selective or, as you said, Christopher, the rejective. Um, but for the rest of us, I think we're just going to be all scrambling for heads. You know, I think the only thing that I can like think about is um, there are institutions out there that possibly have been practicing this before um, in the form of guaranteed admission, meaning that their admission requirements are pretty straightforward. As long as you meet this, 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 and this, mm -hmm. you're in. So I can see how like direct admission approach and, you know, recruiting students and generating applications can work. But I think you're right. I think the biggest challenge is going to be that holistic review process to implement that because I think what guaranteed admission does for a lot of students is kind of the sense of transparency and mm -hmm. with transparency there there's you know there's a sense of relief for the student that they have an option to go you mm -hmm. know um but yeah that's really interesting to hear about the holistic review part and how testing is going to play in that as well yeah well yeah. and Part of the argument we've always made, I you know, I I've pulled a couple institutions test optional as well. And never as far as Nathan did to test blind. I continue to be impressed by that. Um, but part of the argument is test scores are just a small factor of the overall application, and there's so much more to a student than the test scores. But direct admissions is is boiling it down so much, it it feels difficult to to make that argument at the same time. However, mm -hmm. Direct admission, I, I believe, got its start, or at least its recent start, in international admissions. I remember that that, that was happening in international admissions and, and kind of was not co-opted, I don't want to say that, but kind of brought over to um, some of the, the companies here in the States. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that you brought up, because for a lot of students in, these in their national curriculums, you know, the thought of them having their admission application specifically in the U.S. may determine on factors that are not tangible is a culture shock for a lot of students. I mean, like they're coming from an educational system where your test score, it's a cutoff, you know, so it's like you know exactly what you need to score on your final high school exam, whether it's a national exam or it's an individualized institutional exam. 
that you know that you're going to be guaranteed a spot based on these test scores. And also you're going to be guaranteed that's the major that you're going to pursue. So for a lot of students, international students, the whole holistic approach is a little confusing. And those are things that we have to preach. Now, I don't want to use a preach. Those are things that we have to educate students about because it's just so, so different. Um, mm -hmm. And on the reverse side, as much as test optional does provide opportunities for students, I've come, I've come in interaction with international high school counselors, families, and students who are concerned that if you're not looking at my test score, what else are you going to be looking at? You know, because that's just how their education system and their model works. And quite honestly, for a lot of um, students in different countries, these holistic opportunities really are not offered. You know, so yeah. like the extracurricular involvement, the student government, the leadership opportunities, it's because they're so honed in on this one test that's going to determine their future that holistic aspect of a student's profile is really not part of their college process in their home home countries. So it's going to be a really interesting balance to argument to also explore. I think that's a great way to end it. This is a wonderful conversation, Christopher. Um, and we are fresh out of time here. I'm sure we could keep talking about all these topics, but um, we need to wrap it up. So I really appreciate you being on. I'm going to ask you the two final questions that we ask all our guests. Sure. What are you working on next? And then how can folks get in touch with you should they want to continue the conversation? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm heading to Asia on Thursday, so that's what I'm working on. It's just basically <laughs> my schedule. So I'll be in Asia for seven weeks. Um, no, sorry, not seven weeks, three weeks, uh, seven countries, and I go back to Asia again. Um, with the organization right now, with International ACAC, it's my other commitment. And we would want any members who are interested or any, anybody that's interested in learning more about our organization, please feel free to email us at admin at internationalacac.org or visit our website at internationalacac.org as well. We're a member-based organization. We want to spread um, and take our knowledge to as many students and to as many professionals as much as possible. And yeah, reach out to us anytime if you have any questions. Sounds good. Thanks again for joining the LaunchCast. Thanks, Christopher. My pleasure. Have a good one. Aloha. Well, Nathan, just as we hoped, both Perry and Christopher really brought a high level of insight and perspective to the test optional, I'm sorry, not test optional, the future of test scores conversation for our listeners and for the lunch cast. What stood out to you? As always, the student perspective and, um, you know, what, uh, what the benefits have been for the students. Um, but it really was fascinating to have a little bit of history lesson <laughs> from Perry, um, Again, I think I came, you you knew Perry from Wisconsin. I had just, I don't know why, but our paths had never crossed when I was in Wisconsin, you know, mm -hmm. 10 years ago. Um, but to hear his progression in his career um, and how then he moved to school 
um, to test optional and also his perspective around shared governance and the school community mm-hmm. and things like that. And, um, you know, how it can, how there's the pitfalls still with it. Um, but I, I was reminded as listening to him, how easy it was. I probably shouldn't say easy, um, because it wasn't easy when we moved to test blind. Um, but how the, the pandemic really provided us all, an advantage at that mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. Um, to doing it because we had an excuse. And honestly, he admitted it and I will admit it. That was, I, I, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw an opportunity to change. And I think that Perry said this, you know, a lot of schools did saw an opportunity to change these policies um, quickly without mm-hmm. having to go through all the normal channels because we were backed into a corner by the pandemic. Now the what yes the one thing though that really came out to me from the conversation with Perry is uh you know back 15 20 years ago when colleges were going test optional they did it with a lot of deep detailed research on their students and their success yeah. patterns and I don't believe that level of detail is happening when colleges go test optional now no and it does worry me cuz I think I I worry that a lot of colleges are relying on the the thorough deliberative approach that more selective institutions took, and we're hoping that applies the same to our students. So that would just be the one caution I would throw up in this test optional movement is that uh, th- there's work to do to make sure that the, the metrics that left behind are guiding you and your students correctly. I agree with you, but at the same time, I think there's so much more data out there that's available that you can point to if you're sitting in a director role or a vice president role. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas folks like Perry, of course, folks like Steve, mm-hmm. um, they didn't have it. They literally they it. were the embodiment yeah. of the word pioneer. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because mm-hmm. when you're going, you don't have any of that information to go on. You're making, you're you're discovering at that time, if that makes sense. And yeah. Um, we have it easy in so many different ways. And to your point, I 100% agree. You have to figure out if it's right for your institution. Um, but then you can probably easily find like institutions and point to the data or call somebody at that institution say, how did it go for you? What are some of the pitfalls? Um, and make the decision quickly. Um, so I, Mm -hmm. I would agree. Mm -hmm. I would agree for sure that you need to do your research, but at the same time, there's so much more research out there that it makes your job a little bit easier. Yeah. And Christopher, with the international conversations and the discussion mm-hmm. about direct admissions and and the, the different impacts, again, really brought to light a new, pers- a, not a new perspective, a different perspective to this conversation. I mean, I felt a little bad that I had to explain direct admissions to him. I was um, in the moment that took me back a little bit um, that, <laughs> that he didn't know what it was. Um, but man, was it fascinating, um, listening back to that conversation because he said, oh yeah, no, we've been doing that. This is just, (laughs) we just called it Mm -hmm. something different. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, yeah, yep. And that's, um, the same thing. I think I said in the interview, it's like a, I feel like it's sort of like a fast app, but it's, you know, a little bit different, way more sophisticated, um, but I think it's just, and again, this is why we're doing the podcast. This is why I like having discussions at conferences mm-hmm. with folks. You just see it from a different perspective. And regional differences really do matter. And certainly um, school type matters. Yeah. And the perspective he had from the two-year institution um, was really fascinating to look. 
Do you know what I loved about the conversation with Christopher is when he shined, you know, just reflected back a little bit and the way he talked about holistic admissions is what's confusing for some international students. And right. I was, it was, it was, it was like, wow, right, right. Like the way we have all been cultured and accustomed to things here in the States in domestic admissions does not necessarily line up with, with our students all across the rest of the world. Right. Because they, they, the tests are everything and mm-hmm. it's just widely accepted at all the different levels of education. And that's just fascinating to me. Um, and how, I, when I was listening back to the interview, I'm like, how is that going to change? Will it change? Mm-hmm. Will, will the other countries get away from it because they'll be importing, you know, exporting more students to the U.S.? I, I don't know. And it just, it kind of, it was a light bulb moment for me as well. So. All right. Well, a great episode. As always, we are going to be on to episode number 38 next week, which we're really excited about. But mm-hmm. I honestly, teach I'm really excited that we decided to tackle this one, even though, as we said at the onset, it is a very contentious issue with the future of test scores. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think this was a good one. So as always, I'm Nathan. I'm Tej. And that was the Lunchcast. Thanks, folks. <laughs>